Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 58. So welcome to the Speaking Glove. <laughs> I haven't done that before. I can't even say the name of my own show. <laughs> I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Welcome! I thought you might like that little outtake from the recording of this week's show. Well, in this show, we're talking speaking and sales, and my guest is Steve DeManuel, author, sales and marketing coach, and international speaker. His book, The Mongrel Method, is a story-led goldmine of sales tips, and he talks about how he uses this to increase his speaking bookings. And over his long career in sales, he's had global clients like Google and Facebook, although he did start out in a vineyard, and he's going to talk about that. Um, He's seen the landscape of sales change dramatically, and that's something that we get into on the show. Now, before we head on over, I want to let you know that today's show is sponsored by StoryLed Marketing, which is my new company. Now, if you're a regular listener to The Speaking Club, you'll know how critical I believe stories and humour are for speaking success. But they're also the secret weapon for attracting and converting customers. So if you're interested in getting some free training from me on how to use a story-led marketing strategy to make your business stand out and grow, then head over to saraharcher.co.uk slash free training and book your space. But I wouldn't hang around as there's only 100 available. Okay, right, let's switch over now to Steve, Demamuel and me. Sarah, great to be with you. Smashing. Well, thank you for giving me a time. Now, I know you're, it's 6.30 where you are, so very early in the morning. And obviously, it's 9.30, so you're in Australia and I'm in the UK. So we've got quite a big time difference here. So you're bright and buzzy and I'm just <laughs> just coming to the end of, uh, end of my evening. So uh, Winding down and I'm winding up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So cool. Now, uh, there's loads I want to ask you. But first of all, I wanted to start off by asking you if you could give me like a in a nutshell, a canter through your life and your career to, to how you've ended up where you are today and what you talk about today. Yeah, sure. So today I talk about sales and marketing and coaching of teams um, and how they can improve their day-to-day activities and results. And a good part of that today is um, impacted by the technology change. So we're seeing... Um, marketing have a, a larger role in what salespeople do and how companies go to market. So there's a combination of sales and marketing that I focus on and um, you know, that's delivered as a keynote or it's um, more often coaching in smaller teams. But to reverse up and uh, go back to where it all started, I've always had sales and marketing roles um, so I really had no choice um, in that <laughs> my 
um, yeah, my, so straight out of university, I ended up in a sales role um, in, a, in a technology company. And, and I've always been you know, excited about how you can do it better and how um, I could improve myself. And I really enjoyed helping um, others around me get better and work on their opportunities. And, you know, a lot of that is just my competitive nature. So, um, you know, that started with, you know, technology um, in Perth in Western Australia. And then I've moved around Australia, Sydney, and now in Melbourne um, in similar roles and working then with teams around Australia. So if you're in Melbourne, it's a bit easier to travel around rather than be in Perth, uh, which is the most isolated capital in the city in the world. Is it? Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's a long way from anywhere, Perth. But I mean, I guess with the virtual um, sort of world that we live in, that, that is, is, that an, is that so much of an issue now in terms of where you are? Probably less so. Um, I think certainly in sales, there's always, it's always better if you can get in front of people so you can get a sense of the other person and how they work and what's their motivations behind some of their decisions. And look, and I also think if you don't get on with them, if there isn't some sort of connection, if it's not working for both of you, it won't, it won't go ahead. You know, a lot of my best customers over the years have actually turned into personal friends and I've had long relationships with because when we work together, we both win. I think sales and marketing is a uh, fabulous profession. Was it technology that you were in or, or was it something, or have you done lots of different stuff? Yeah, so it's been data centres for the last 10 years. Um, so I had an Asia-Pac role with a US company and uh, was you know, working closely with uh, Google and Facebook, um, our largest telco here, Telstra, as they expanded through the Asia-Pac region. So I spent a fair bit of time in China and Hong Kong with those companies as, uh, as they grew. And that was the exciting times. Um, and there was a large bit of project management piece in that. And the funny thing is I learnt more about sales from project managers because um, there's a very strong correlation between how you scope a project and how you qualify a sale. So it's funny where, you, um, where your skills come from and how, you know, which different areas you, you pick things up from. And so, you know, we talk, you mentioned a lot of things. You mentioned a speaker, a, you know, a coach. How, what, how would you describe yourself today when you meet people? Uh, a sales and marketing coach, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Okay. And, and you talk about a shift that's happened in sales, you know, very much. I think if, I, if I've understood what I've read correctly from, from what you, you know, talk about, that there is there is less of a separation between sales and marketing to now, and the two have come together or, or need to come together in order to be effective. Is, have I understood that right? Is that what you yeah, put forward? And why do you think that's happened? Yeah. So what's happened over the last ten years? You know, at, you know, the birth date, the the changing factor was one, the iPhone, and two, Facebook. And what's happened is that, you know, in the old days, if you wanted, if you're in a, 
um, a business and you wanted to make a major change or if you're a consumer and you wanted to make a major purchase, a house, a car, something like that, something where you spent a considerable amount of time investigating and looking at the options and torturing yourself over all of those variations, you would go and talk to a salesperson. You would go to a showroom, you'd go to a store and you touch and feel and have those conversations. And the salesperson held the power. You know, they had all the knowledge. These days, um, you know, nobody believes a salesperson. Um, they will believe a random stranger on a review site before they'll believe somebody who has been selling you know, that product for the last 10 years. And inside facebook that big change was um the groups so you know there used to be websites with forums and forums were great and um you know people could look through those sort of things but they were essentially websites they weren't mobile friendly and facebook pages where you have group discussions um are easy to flick through easy to put pictures up and they're more conversational so that was a real turning point. And I think we've seen a decline of forums over the years and lots of these Facebook pages and other discussion groups where people, if they're looking to you know, do something for the first time, they'll flick through these things and, um, and sure, the same question will come up three times over a six month period but it's more of a natural conversation and people can throw out random questions and ask other people's opinions. And if you're asking somebody else's opinion who already has made that purchase, been down that journey, they're often very willing to give their thought on what, you know, how, what their experience has been. So um, the fact that it's more of a um, sit around, the dining room table conversation. Um, I think people engage in with a lot more and that is their reference point today. And that doesn't matter, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're buying a major IT system for your company or you're buying a new push bike. There is some reference point, there is some discussion going on somewhere that you can look at and you can review and you can ask questions and you can engage in the conversation before you go and talk to a salesperson. And now when you go and talk, you know, walk into any store or showroom or engage with a, an organization, most people are 70% through that buying journey. They've already got these um, biases and beliefs in their mind about what will work for them. And all of that is based on, um, you know, conversations online with random people they've never met, but they happen to belong to um, their own group in terms of their interests. And, um, you know, if it was a bike for argument's sake, it could be the local um, bike club that they've started a conversation with. And they will always rely on that advice before they'll go to, a salesperson because the motivation is different. And I think as people where 
we look at what is the motivation behind where that advice is coming from before um, we will rely on it. Interesting, because I, because I knew, I guess I thought this was the case, obviously in in B to C, but is it is that true in B to B as well? You know, that same scenario where you know companies are buying CRM systems or you know SAP or Oracle, that sort of thing. Is is it happening there as well now? Is that what you're saying? I think so. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're right. There used to be an absolute separation the way purchasing happened, procurement happened, but the world is social, um, be it online now or in those large procurement um, decisions. You know, I can remember a day when, you know, if you're in business, you never bought an iPhone because an iPhone was a personal device. You know, you would, if you were serious about business, you had a Blackberry. You didn't have an iPhone. <laughs> And now all of this is merged together. All of the apps, the way the apps operate, um, you look at you know, your apps on your phone that you use for business and also for personal, the, the look, the feel, the touch, how they work is all the same now. Um, you know, websites are the, the same. So I think um, the process now between um, business to consumer and business to business is very similar because they're both having a conversation with other users, other interest groups to drive that decision, to help influence that decision process. So effectively what you're saying, again, if I've understood correctly, is that salespeople are motivated to sell and they are, you know, they're, they're, they have an agenda, whereas social proof, you think it may not be the case always, but you think that it's it's genuine and pe- these are people's experience, so you trust it more. That's effective. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Social proof, I think, is absolutely vital, and it doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, if you're a speaker, everybody everybody goes looking for your show reel um, evidence of you speaking. Um, that's the first thing they go looking for. If you're looking to buy a bike, you know people are looking for social proof or others who who will verify that yes that's a good decision it is um, the right decision for how you're going to use that push bike um, and likewise you know and I think it's gone to the extent now where social proof and its extension social listening is replacing R&D and net promoter score those sort of things where a business will go out to consumers and say, tell us what you think um, in a controlled environment. And I think if companies are actually just listening to what's happening socially, they will get a more realistic answer and a more natural answer. Um, You know, I don't see the value in net promoter score these days because it's quite a contrived scenario um, you know, people are put on the spot, tell us what you think, what's going on in the back of their mind is how this reflects on the person that uh, had served them. And it also is going on, you know, I don't know, here in Australia, you know, telcos and all those, you know, ask that net promoter score at the end of the conversation of which 70% of the time, the, you know, it, it hasn't been answered the, or the issue hasn't been resolved why you started the conversation has been dealt with so 
those net promoter scores get a bit unrealistic. But if the company is actually listening to what is going on online, what is the buzz, you know, what's happening on Twitter, they get a sense of what people are really thinking without being put on the spot. And I think that has more value, that social listening and that social proof than any sort of formal or contrived um, measure. And, you know, I've seen companies where the conversation around how um, customers use their product um, and what they wish they could do is what actually is driving R&D decisions. And they're seeing, you know, um, great value in just being mindful of what the customer is doing and saying online and helping them to, you know, make considered decisions around that where, you know, if they went out and did focus groups and those other controlled environment, um, uh, you know, I guess more traditional R&D methods, it puts people on the spot mm. and there's just that, there's not that natural conversation that brings out um, those little gold nuggets that if you're responsible for R&D that you wouldn't otherwise find. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting, isn't it? It must be quite a depressing, <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a traditional salesperson, you must be like banging your head against the wall or you just need to adapt to, to the way that the, the new playing field is working, I guess. But you talked about relationships when we started the conversation and, you know, relationships happen you know offline as well as online and so do you think there's still a, a place for an offline sales strategy in in the world we live in today and is it as important as it ever was i think absolutely yeah um online an online strategy is vital because it's really the only way you can create that social proof and you can leverage your efforts it's very expensive to do the offline one-on-one sales uh, calls these days. You know, that is that uh, as a standalone strategy is very expensive and very slow. Um, you know, you've got to keep your pipeline full. You've got to keep the, you know, the leads coming through and that needs to be happening online. Um, but in terms of actually, uh, a customer making a large decision. Um, am I comfortable with the person I'm about to you know, go into, you know, partnership with? Um, I know from my own experience where you're know, selling management software and things like that, it's a long-term commitment and it has a major impact on the business if there is an issue in you know, some of those core systems. And if you're not comfortable with the that team that will support it, um, you know, that's a, you know, that can have a, a real impact on which way you jump. Um, and I know in, um, you know, one of my own businesses, uh, we've actually gone for, uh, from a technology perspective, the number two system may not have all the bells and whistles, but we know that it's actually supported in Australia we have great support and the team sitting behind it can um, fix it when something goes wrong and invariably it will. 
um, so the business can continue to operate. So actually having the team in place and be able to eyeball the person that's actually going to provide that support, I think is pretty important. So it's, it's basically the top of the funnel's changed, but the bottom of the funnel really needs to be as it was in, in order to, to make those conversions happen on a face-to-face basis. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought about it that way before, but you're right. The, um, how you get things in the top of the funnel is very different. Cool. Now, I, what I really want to talk to you about as well is, is what your sort of brand, the, the mongrel method. What is it? Yep. How did you come up with it? And how does it work? And I just love the name of it. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so the book is called The Mongrel Method. And there's a couple of things going on there. So if you know what a, a mongrel dog is, it's a mix of breeds. And you know, going to market these days is a mix of sales and marketing. So there's a mongrel approach. We've got sales and marketing combined. And the other twist in the story is the book is, in fact, um, the um, protagonist in the book is my dog, Samuel de Mamiel. And <laughs> what I, as a uni student, I worked in vineyards in Western Australia. And it's hard work, you know, it's either too hot or it's wet and horrible. And the best place to be was always cellar sales. And if you could be behind this, the bar in cellar sales, you didn't care about what the weather was. And Sam loved that because there was people coming in and out. And if it was 40 degrees outside, he could be laying on the cool um, tiles in the cellar sale. Or if it was the middle of winter and it was eight degrees, he could be in front of the fire and he could get up and down and greet people um, all day. And he loved it. But the catch was we had to keep selling. I had to keep selling to stay in cellar sales. <laughs> so, if you weren't selling wine, you're out in the vineyard. Oh. And uh, so what would happen during you know, the course of the day, you know, Sam would meet people and you'd see these interactions going on. And during my sales coaching, I would tell these stories about um, the dog. And what happened was, or what happens in the book is each chapter opens up with a story and an analogy or a metaphor for a sales or marketing idea and then follows through with the implementation of it or the, you know, the mechanics of um, that sales skill or that marketing skill. And what I was, when I was delivering sales coaching weeks later, you know, I would be often doing an account review of a salesperson and they'd tell me the story back again that I had told in a classroom environment. <laughs> These little snippets that stuck in their mind about the dog. And so I realised that storytelling and actually giving somebody an anchor point for a sales skill had impact, but it helped them recall the idea. So the book is a dozen um, sales and marketing um, skills, um, ideas anchored around a metaphor for um, what happened with Sam in the vineyard. 
Oh, bless. I like that. And, and you've got on your website, which I'll link to in the show notes and we'll talk a bit about later on, the, 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 the dog is, is all over the place on, on the website, which is uh, yeah, yeah. nice. Cool. And, and I know that, you know, one of you, you, you are a speaker and one of your talks, uh, you talk about the shift from demographic, psychographics and personas to customer intent. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so the buzzword these everybody talks about personas and yeah. online and in, in the content marketing world, personas is the buzzword. And you know, that's what does my customer look like? What age are they? What do they do Monday to Friday? Um, do they do school drop-offs? Those sort of things. So they're building a, a character um, for their typical customer. And all their marketing content and sales effort is focused on this persona, what typical person looks like. And if we go back, that idea of you know, demographics and psychographics and personas, all of that was developed to narrow the target market. So it's a targeting exercise. You know, let's not you know, take the shotgun approach to our advertising and marketing spend. Let's make it, let's narrow it and try and make it more effective. Well, today we can go one step further and we can actually target people who not in this big pool of people that um, look like our typical customer, but we can target people who are actually taking action who are out there making a buying decision they've started a buying journey and they're going to be a real customer at some point so personas look at people at a big pool of people customer intent looks at those who are actually qualified going to make a buying decision so and how, how do you how do you so so when you're starting a business so i, I talk to my clients about creating a, you know i guess an avatar which is a similar thing or you know being being really clear on your customer's story and where yep. they are and what their problem and pain is how how do you identify you know how do you then sort of slice the ones with this uh, you know intent to buy well how do you do that yeah so i think you, you do need to be clear about your typical persona um, and you mentioned pain point mm. and that's the key to customer intent. So what are the things that they do to solve that pain point? Right. And, you know, I'm looking for an example relevant to what you just described, but if, you know, somebody, um, you know, is looking to become a, a, a better speaker, um, you know, they potentially might be one of your clients. They will know about, other sites they will they might touch on some of your competitors or um, they would have looked at some of your other content so they would have taken action around um, um, they've invested I typically look for two investments both time and money so have they invested the time and this is relevant to I think you know any purchase um, are they investing the time to enable a decision? 
Um, you know, you, you'll often get somebody say, look, I haven't had time. I will get to it. Um, I've been busy. Well, that just says something else is taking priority. So you're not going to make a decision. You're not going to take action and make a purchase in the short term because a lot of things require, you know, a lot of purchasing decisions require to invest time um, and do all of these, um, you know, all of this pre-work. Mm. So the question is, you know, have they invested the time in that pre-work? And often they'll make, um, you know, lead up little purchases. Um, you know, I think the best example I could give is if somebody was going to do a home renovation, um, put a new kitchen in, they've spent, and you were selling the kitchen to be installed, the question would be, have you spent money on the permits to do the work? Have you spent money with an architect? Have you spent time with that architect? Have you actually done all of that work up front that needs to happen to enable you to make this purchase? And if they haven't done those things, well, you need to send them off to do, to do that. Um, they're clearly not going to buy that new kitchen from you or instruct you to construct that new kitchen if they haven't got a design ready to go. And at that point, that often ends up back, you know, they end up back in your marketing funnel at that point. Um, but it's, I think, a very important qualifier is um, have they shown intent, have they demonstrated intent, and have they actually invested in it? And those two investments you go looking for are time and money with, you know, with anything. So, so, so would you check this? I'm just trying to think it in terms of my world. So would you check this? So they may be there, they're on your mailing list. I'm thinking about what B2B as well. They're on your mailing list. Um, so they've, they've done something, but in order for them to buy your high ticket items, such as a new kitchen or that you need to have a conversation with them to see where they are in the buying process effectively is what you're saying. And you know, is that right? Have I got that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, do you need to have a conversation with them? Is that weird? Yeah, I mean, so how do you how do you find out, or how are you suggesting we find out where these people are in that buying journey? Is that through a conversation or a, an email survey, or how 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 do yeah. we do that? Well, there's two approaches. If it's ha if you're if somebody can go through and complete the buying journey and purchase online. Um, you, they'll often leave clues oh, to, okay. um, yeah, you know, have they been through the email? I, I use a, um, Hobbs, a HubSpot CRM and it will show email opens. Yeah. And, you know, you send, somebody says, oh, can you just email me this? I'll review it, those sort of things. Um, you know, if the email hasn't been opened, there's no point saying, hey, have you looked at it? And, and, you know, I say, look, we're going to make a decision about this in the next few weeks. But they haven't opened your email. They haven't looked at it multiple times. If you've offered an online demo or a video, have they actually reviewed that? Right. And the tools around now that you can see if they've actually done that. Um, so I'll often look for a disconnect between the conversation we're having. You know, yes, we're going to do this. But I'm thinking, but you haven't invested the time right? You haven't played with the demo. You haven't watched the video. You've had a one quick skim of the email. 
you're not really serious about this. Um, and often I'll say to people, I'll say, look, um, most of my clients do all of these things before they make a decision. Um, doing these things gives them some comfort around the decision. Um, I'm not getting a sense that, you know, you've done those things yet um, or you haven't had time with them yet. And at which point they often self-qualify and they say, yeah, look, you're right. Um, we've got some further work to do before we get, we get there. Well, which is great. Then your forecasting is far more accurate because, you know, one of the biggest failings in sales is accuracy of pipeline. Yeah. And for a lot of people, they're just uncomfortable with having that conversation with the prospect, to, you know, because you're essentially calling them out in the disconnect between what they're saying and they want to do versus them actually investing the time and energy and money to get them themselves to that point. Um, and there's ways you can tactfully do that, but I think a good salesperson, you know, somebody running their own business, you have to be able to do that and you have to work on how do I, um, in a polite way, call the customer out on that and um, put them in the right place in my pipeline because there's no point spending time on that prospect because you know they're telling you they're at the pointy end of the decision yeah. but they're leaving clues that they, they're not really you know they haven't done all of this prerequisite stuff um, so there's no point because if you push on what happens is it's one of those opportunities that goes into nowhere. No yeah. decision is made. So I'm a big believer in, so, in, in calling that out and just say, look, you know, Mr. Prospect, um, a lot of our clients, when they think they're at this point, they've done all of these things beforehand. And I'm not getting a sense you've done that at this point. Is this... Um, is it stuff that you've looked at? Is there something we can help you do? And when I say help you do that often, then is hand it back to marketing um, to get you to that point. Or, you know, if there's some sort of prerequisite and going back to the kitchen example, you know, I know a friendly architect, um, you know, maybe you need to go and talk to them. Or, you know, if, often if you're selling something, there's some allied service or person which is the prerequisite that you can point them off to um uh, to you know, make sure they're actually going along that purchasing journey that's interesting because it's actually i think it's very similar to what you were saying about the difference between net promoter score and social listening because what they'll say you know, in, in a particular environment doesn't reflect what, they, what, what they're actually thinking. And this is the same thing. So they're saying one thing because we have a need to please and we want to be liked and, you know, we don't want to say what we're really thinking, which is just like, I'm not ready, leave me alone or whatever. Um, but, but that's true. You know, your open rates, your reads, your clicks, all of the stuff that you can get from CRMs or, you know, um, email management uh, systems are, are really clues. That's a, that's a really good thing to sort of think about. I like that. Cool. Yeah. And, you know, it's an alarm bell for me if somebody, you know, jumps in the start of the pipeline and suddenly is at the end. Yeah. And you know, something's gone wrong here. Or, 
you know, it might be some fluke in that they've, you know, heard me speak before at a conference or, you know, they've bought the book or something like that. But if some, somebody's, I think, or they give, they say to me, you know, we've just stumbled across you and suddenly I'm supposed to be in their um, office dealing with 20 salespeople. That's weird. You know, that, that is not a normal sales cycle. That says, you know, haven't been through a normal um, you know, review of options. That says you haven't, you know, looked at the budget properly. Um, they're alarm bells to me. And over the years I've known that sure enough, something will go wrong. <laughs> being it being what feels like a shortcut. Yeah. Um, and you as a salesperson are going, wonderful. How good was this? This was really easy. Um, but that, um, what feels like a bonus is often a red flag. Cool. That's interesting. I like that. Now, the other thing that um, I noticed and sort of piqued my interest was, was the term micro moments. What, what's that all about? Yeah. So if you Google micro, micro moments, Google do a wonderful job of explaining that. And that's all of those little decisions ah. along the way to making a purchasing decision. Um, so um, you're going to a restaurant and you're on your phone, you know, restaurants near me, um, you know, services near me. So near me is one of those things, opening hours, um, those little things that help you be prepared to go or make a decision in your immediate proximity. Um, you know, are those little things that have a big impact on the final decision. And typically they're sort of, you know, low involvement decisions. You're looking for, you know, three or four things that will make the decision for you. And the trick is to make those decision points available easily to the customer on the phone. Because a lot of those decisions about what I'm going to do next, where I'm going to eat or where I'm going to purchase a, a service, where I'm going to go and get a haircut. Um, they're little things that are accessed on the phone to help that customer make that decision. Um, so I think, you know, those, you know, what I, I start one presentation where I highlight the irony between how people plan their online presence and what they do every day of the week. And I open up with a slide where there's somebody laying in bed with their mobile phone in their hand. <laughs> and, you know, and I say, look, you know, who starts and finishes their day this way? And everybody goes, yes, that's all of us. We do all of that. And we all have a chuckle about that. And everybody, you know, realizes that's exactly what they do. And then they arrive at the office and go, right, we're going to work on our marketing plan, our online strategy. And all of that starts around a 20 inch monitor. And of course it's all designed on this large screen, but they're not thinking about how it actually presents and how it gets used and, um, on the little screen, on those little micro moments that are those key points. And it's all done on a phone, yet the, you know, we're all designing it online and we're putting lots of content on beautiful web pages. 
Um, yet we all know instinctively that's not how it's going to get used. You know, 70% of the time it's going to be on a little um, screen in your hand. That's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's always this, um, you know, I've, you know, my experience in the past of uh, talking to, you know, sales and marketing training, all that good stuff is about making, making it easy for people to do business with you, but they are doing business with you now on this little tiny phone, like you say, and, and, and we've got very little patience these days. <laughs> if something isn't easy, we're just like, click off, you know, I'm going to find someone else who's going to make my life easy for me. Yeah, and that's right. And, you know, I, at the start of this session, I was saying how I spent lots of time in Asia. And for a lot of Asian countries, the idea of a study with a large screen um, just doesn't happen. You know, I have friends in Hong Kong who just don't have computers set up at home because they all live in tiny little apartments. Yeah. So the world revolves around the screen in your hand and if it doesn't work in the screen in their hand, it's for a lot of them, it just doesn't happen any other way. The only interaction they have with a large screen is in the office. So for a good chunk of their time, they're simply doing all of that review, um, looking for that social proof, um, you know, having uh, the phone influence that decision-making. Brilliant. Cool. Well, that's been uh, illuminating so far in lots of ways. Um, now, tell me about your speaking. How, how does speaking fit into your business model? You know, how often do you speak? You know, how long have you been speaking um, in your business and, and so on? Yeah, so look, I've been speaking for a long, you know, 10-odd years. Um, you know, I was in the debating team at high school, so it's always been a theme for me. Um, in terms of how it fits into the business, it's often a great way of taking one key idea and presenting it in 45 minutes. And often out of that, um, somebody in the audience has this aha moment and says, you know what, that's what we're doing wrong. We really need to work on that in our own organisation. Um, and, you know, there's consulting work and, you know, sales coaching that falls out of that exercise. So, you know, I love doing it. I'm absolutely terrified when I do it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, but I believe, you know, if you're not scaring yourself, you're not trying hard enough. Absolutely. Um, um, so it's an important um, marketing tool, I think, and, you know, it pays well. Um, I think a lot of people underestimate the work that goes into doing a good presentation. Um, you know, the multiple of time versus what gets delivered is extraordinary, I think. Um, you know, I've got one coming up in a fortnight that's 90 minutes. And, you know, most are typically 45 minutes an hour. And to do 90 minutes isn't just let's do two 45-minute ones or let's take the usual 45 minute and just, you know, add some other stuff. There's a huge amount of more other work that goes into it. Cause one, how do you keep an audience engaged for 90 minutes when, you know, most people, you know, operated lumps of 45 minutes these days. And two, how do you have this, um, 
storyline run for 90 minutes, you know, from start to finish, um, all the way through. Um, and, you know, I've found, and it's a, been a while since I've done 90 minutes. And as I said, they don't happen that often these days. Um, and, but I found it's been an extraordinary amount of work to have this um, storyline run all the way through. So people actually want to get to the end of that presentation. Um, and then how do you mix, put something in the middle of it that gets them up on their feet and gets them talking and engaged um, in the middle of that? So, um, you know, I love doing it. It's an extraordinary amount of work. And I think a lot of event organisers undervalue the work that good presenters put into a presentation. I think you're right. I think, you know, I guess there's, there's two camps of speakers, though, in terms of, you know, and I guess, you know, same in the comedy world in some senses. There's the speakers who trot out the same stuff, you know, and... And, and do that talk all again and again, I guess. And then there's the, the other bunch that really sort of try and tailor it and bespoke it for the audience at hand. And I, it sounds like you're, you're in that latter camp that, that, you know, and I think, you know, I think that often does make the difference between, you know, an average speaker and a, and a, and a great speaker is someone that does take that time to, um, to, to make something special for the audience they're going to talk to. I don't know if so is that, is that something that you do is do, is every talk different or you know maybe the similar theme but different every time yeah so there's a, you know 75% of it is consistent it's these are key principles these are yeah. key ideas um that's the same but you've got to spend the time to connect it to the audience um hey that was the basis of the book the dog connected the content to the audience yeah. Uh, the same approach has got to be happening in your um, presentations. You've got to spend the time doing a bit of research on who the customer is, where are their pain points, what conversations are they having now, what are they looking to resolve, and how can you connect your content, your presentation, to those issues they're looking to resolve. Um, and if you do that... Um, you know, you, you get a lot more work out of it. It's, you have a lot, you know, you get a lot better feedback and you have, you know, certainly uh, a more engaged audience. And when someone sees that you're making the effort to um, connect to them and deliver value to them, they'll get you back. They'll refer you on. They, be, you know, as an absolute minimum, they become a good, you know, reference um, for future work. Yeah, it's definitely worth making that investment. And you mentioned the book, and obviously we talked about the book. Did that have any impact on your speaking? Did you find that it took it to another level, or how, how did that work? Did it have any impact at all? Um, oh, look, it certainly had an impact. Um, I, particularly on those who had not you know, come across me before, who had no idea who I was. I think a, yeah, a book is, um, you know, it can be anything from, you know, showing you're an expert in the field to a glorified business card. Uh, you know, I'll often, you know, if I'm talking to someone for the first time, they don't know me, they're looking at your website, I'll make sure I'll send them a couple of copies of the book with a handwritten note 
Um, nobody gets mail, and nobody, you know, unless it's an Amazon yeah. um, parcel turning up. Uh, and I found that's been very effective when they actually, you know, can pass the book around. And again, talking about customer intent and qualifying, have they looked at the book? Do they, rec- you know, if, and if they're repeating bits of the book back to you, and they say, "Oh, we, you know, this is relevant to what we had," and you go, "Great," you know, they're going to book you um, for their next conference. Um, so the books worked well um, from that perspective. Um, as you know, an author, it's not, you know, I'm never going to make a living out of writing books or selling books because you need an audience. Um, you know, I, you need to be spending time building up very big uh, audiences and have big email lists to go, right, I'm writing a book and release it on the Monday and by Friday um, sold a bunch of them. Yeah. And that's not, you know, that's not the business I'm in. Um, but for, I think for speakers, they can do it in a lots of different ways. They can you know, do a podcast. They can write a book. Um, you know, they can be having a, a blog with good content. Um, all of those things are a huge amount of work, but I think they're a necessary um, piece of work to, to show that, you know, you have some knowledge in this, you keep showing up um, and you keep developing your own skills in the particular area. Cool. Thank you for that. And I've got just a, a quick couple more questions on your speaking. So do, do you use an agency, Steve, or do you do book direct with the, the companies? Uh, directly. Yeah. Yeah. Is I've got any- a, I was so going to say, on. I've got some speaker friends who do a mix of both. Um, th- and I don't know anybody in Australia that would make a living purely out of relying on agencies. Um, those who do get a good chunk of work out of agencies, um, if they've booked a client direct, they will still pay agency their fee. Um, and that that's made, I've noticed that's made a huge difference for them because um, I think it's very difficult to be an agency these days because um, you know, you're always looking for new clients. Um, you know, it's just the size of the business. You've got to keep finding new clients. Um, and you'll keep using the same speakers um, who, are one, are good, but two, um, will gladly pay your fee um, and if, you know, and if you're getting these little bonuses every now and then from a speaker uh, where you haven't um, directly booked them, but they've acknowledged the agreement that, hey, you're working exclusively with us um, and this is our fee and they'll willingly hand it over um, when they could have maybe, you know, could have hidden that. Um, that's uh, worked very well for a few speakers I know. Cool. And then, so... I get, so we've talked about you using stories in your talks and um, I'm getting a sense that you use humor as well. Well, I think that, that, you know, you talked about having the chuckle at the start of the, of the talk. Um, Do you plan, you know, things like humor and, you know, obviously use stories um, to make your talks engaging and relevant. How important are those things, you know, when you speak? Yeah, the humor bit is more accidental than deliberate. Um, I wouldn't consider myself a joke teller. My problem is I never remember the jokes anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
uh, which really annoys me. <laughs> um, you know, you know these people who can, you know, can sit there and you know, around a campfire and rattle off two hours of jokes. I'm definitely not that person. Um, so, you know, there's, I'll often find that, you know, there's a story that does get a laugh or it's amusing or, you know, and then I'll work that in um, just to give things a bit of a lift. Uh, yeah, look, I think it's an important um, element. And as a speaker, it's, I think it's an important element because it's actually giving you feedback on what you've just said, you know, was the message received the way you wanted it to be received. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's great as a little feedback mechanism. Brilliant. Thank you. And, and in your journey, last question before I go on to my standard ones, um, in your journey as a speaker, what, what's the most important thing that you've learned? Uh, to keep learning. So if you're, um, you know, your field of speaking, your subject matter is always evolving. Um, and if I'm presenting, if I've got a conference to speak at, you're always doing a bit of research on one, the client and two, the subject matter. So you're always learning. And I think that's a very important part of it. And, you know, if I wasn't presenting on a regular basis, I probably wouldn't do the work that I do to keep up to date um, in the area of sales and marketing. So, you know, your day fills with other things. Um, you know, I see it a lot when I talk to salespeople. They say, I've got 10 years experience. And, but what's going through my mind is you've got 10 years of experience of doing the same thing. Um, you're not investing the time in, you know, upskilling and keeping up to date with the changes that are going on in the market. Cool. And and I guess so. Onto the the standard questions, if that's okay, you know, it, you may have just answered this one. But what what's the the best thing that speaking has done for you? Yeah. So I have just answered it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it keeps it keeps me current. Uh, it keeps me fresh. It makes me keep up to date on what's going on around me. Um, so I'm not that old guy who um, had relevant experience many years ago. Um, you know, today I can actually go and um, get inside a, you know, a digital agency um, and have a relevant conversation with you know the early twenty somethings that are running the place. You can go toe to toe with those millennials and younger. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Cool. And what's the worst gig you've had? Is there one where you are on that it all went wrong, or have you had a have you had a perfect record so far? <laughs> I haven't had a complete disaster. I tend to be probably a bit more critical of myself than, you know, when I see the video back, I go, oh, that wasn't that bad. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can't nail something where I go, that is so bad, I'm not sending the invoice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is is there anything embarrassing happened, Steve? Anything that is... Or you've oh, just look, been a you know, lucky guy. <laughs> oh, look, there's, te there's always technology fail. If you do the preparation and you're ready to go and you could actually present without PowerPoint slides and the technology and all of those sort of things, um, you, you've turned up as prepared as you possibly could. You know, that's got to be the first thing to eliminate 
the possibilities that you could actually make a disaster of it. Um, yeah, you know, we've all had those tech failures and you just charge on regardless. Um, you know, I hate when people, you know, make excuses for it all the time. Look, sorry, we have the slides, but, you know, if I had the slide, you know, don't do that. Just get on and deliver it like it's business as usual um, because you're not going to get a second chance. You know, everybody's here in the room, so let's just get on and make the most of it. Um, yes, yeah, sometimes when I've been in the US and I've been rattling on at a million miles an hour, I've noticed that, you know, there's, you know, just cult very minor cultural differences or ideas that haven't got across. Um, so I'm more mindful of that these days, you know, where I'll get, you know, 15 minutes down, you know, in a classroom environment for argument's sake and get, and you think, oh, hang on, I've missed the last two points. Right. Um, I need to go back over them. Um, and I've you know, had that sort of thing in you know, Singapore a couple of times. Um, and that's more of an accent issue. Um, so look, if you're aware and you're prepared um, and when things go wrong, you just go, right, this is the environment we're working in. Let's just get on and do it. Um, you know, generally, it's okay. Oh, I like that. I like that. I prefer, yes, yeah, it's, it's good not to, to whinge and blame because it just, you know, like you say, you just got to get on with it. You're professional. You've got, you're being paid, do it. So good, good stuff. Good That's advice right. there. Okay. What's, apart from your own, what's the um, book that you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? Um, uh, a million years ago, um, I would have read a few Zig Ziglar sales books um you know that's all very old school these days but um you know great presenter great you know great content um uh so some of his stuff is fantastic recently i've read um donald miller um story brand oh yes i know his work yeah um i think that is very good and and you know the message there is just just make it simple yeah. Cut all the rubbish out. In five seconds, can somebody understand what you're on about, what you sell, and how they buy it? Um, you know, I've worked for technology companies that, you know, crap on about, um, you know, we streamline your workflow to automate this process <laughs> to give you maximum efficiency. And you go, what? What the hell is that? Um, where um, the story brand approach is we sell this widget and it delivers that outcome. And I think a lot of businesses and a lot of individuals running their own business could benefit from that, um, that approach, just simplifying exactly what they do. So, you know, it's getting back to the old ele elevator pitch in 30 seconds. The, can somebody get it? I, I like that stuff. I, he, I think he has a great sentence which sort of sums it up, which is, if you confuse, you lose, basically. Yeah. So lose yep. attention, lose a sale and all sorts. Great. Okay. And what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? Um, brains are cheap. Um, <laughs> I le so um, to find somebody who can, you know, give you the knowledge and all of those sort of things um, to work out a problem 
in the grand scheme of things, that is relatively cheap. The expensive part is finding somebody you can execute and execute on a regular basis. And that's why salespeople get well paid because the, ex the ability to close a deal and keep executing sales is very difficult. Um, you know, you take a bit of a beating in that role. You get told no lots. And it's not just salespeople, you're running your own business. Um, you're running your own business, be it one person or a team of 20. That ability to keep executing is really important. Um, and that's often the expensive part in a business. Um, it's very easy now to find somebody on Freelancer or Fiverr and to help you solve a little problem or do something for you. Um, or, you know, if it's, you know, do a marketing plan or a, do a cash flow, that's all easy and relatively cheap to do these days at any scale. The hard part is doing the execution and that's often the expensive bit. Cool. Okay. Thank you. And then the last question, um, if you could choose anyone, uh, alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional to be your mentor, who would you choose and why? Um, oh, look, I'd probably have to go back to Zig. Um, that enthusiasm and that, um, those presentation skills and that sales ability, um, and you know, some of these values are all wonderful things. So brilliant. Um, okay. I think there should be more of it. Brilliant. Thank you. I, you're the, you're the, I think the second person this week, I haven't had Zig before and then uh, two come along at once. So ah, <laughs> there you go. he's a great guy. Well, listen, Steve, thank you so much for sharing all of that stuff with us i think there's some real you know value bombs in there for people to pick up uh, in from a business perspective and from a speaking perspective um if people want to get the book to hire you to speak or to work with you where's the best place for them to go uh they google the mongrel method that's the easiest way to find me at the website so the mongrel method.com they'll be able to contact me via the website Brilliant. I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. And they can get the book from there and presumably from Amazon as well. Amazon is the best place to buy it. Yep. Brilliant. Thank you. And are you on social media? Uh, yes, I don't do it as well as I should, but um, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter. Yep. Okay, brilliant. I'll put a link to those as well. Well, listen, um, and I just want to say, you've got a, a nasty cold. So I'm really pretty, 6.30 in the morning, you're full of chest infection and yet you've come out and you've delivered. So thank you very much for doing that. Oh, Sarah, it's been a pleasure. It's been good fun. That was cool, wasn't it? I think sales and marketing is fascinating. And there were some great tips there from Steve. And definitely go and check out the Mongrel Method book. And Samuel de Mamuel, that was a classic. I, mean, I used to hate sales, actually. It made me feel sleazy and pushy, and that's why I created a new way of doing it. And thanks again for listening to the show. I appreciate it, really. And, you know, it's brilliant to get reviews and see people getting value from, from what I, you know, put out there. Um, if you are a regular listener, make sure you subscribe. And I'd really love it if you could leave an honest review, if you haven't yet. And... As I said before, at the beginning of the show, if you want to get the lowdown on my story-led marketing strategy, then don't forget to sign up for the free training at saraharcher.co.uk slash free training, where I'll share all about it. 
and you can get a free marketing treasure map. Ooh. Well, until next time, go out there, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. If you want to discover how to create a killer pitch that makes you or your business stand out from the crowd, then you'll want to grab your copy of my book, Straight to the Top. It will help you clarify your USP, your business story, who your target market is, and what will make them buy. You'll discover how to get the edge on the competition and position your offer for success. You'll also get proven elevator and investor pitch frameworks to use for maximum impact. To get the book for free, plus lots of extra bonuses, you just pay shipping and handling. Go to standoutpitch.com today.